Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Um, this morning we have a subject that is uh, very pertinent. In the first service, I asked Jody, how often do we as pastors and elders deal with the issue of uh, knowing when to accept people and knowing when to cut ourselves off from people. And I want to talk about that today because it's very easy, given our text this morning, for us to fall into the sort of cloying, sentimental uh, kind of togetherness that is political correctness. You understand? And that's not what we're talking about today, but let's Go ahead and read the text, I'll pray, and then let's get into it. Listen to the word of God, which is eternally true, Romans 15, verses 7 to 13. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, please feed us. Make the words of this sinner's mouth acceptable, as well as the thoughts, the meditations of our hearts, that we may go from this place united under the doctrine of Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Apostle Paul has been working on bringing unity to the church in Rome. We all know that. It's gone on and on. This is the end of that section of the book of Romans. From now on, the last chapter and a half of the book of Romans is going to be sort of what you would say a grab bag, incidentals. He goes here, he goes there. He does touch on the issue of Jews and Gentiles again as he points to his unique call as an apostle to the Gentiles. But really, this is the end of him unifying the church in their divisiveness. Now, you know because of the last few weeks that the divisiveness has had some characteristics revealed to us. And we know that one of the things they were fighting about was their consumption of food and drink. We know they were fighting over the issue of meat. And you remember when we looked at that, that we admitted that we didn't know what exactly the nature of that fight was. In Corinthians, we have it fleshed out. Here in Romans, we don't. And and churches don't have to fight over the same issue in the same way. One of the things that's interesting is there was no mention of Jews and Gentiles in the fight over meat. Did you notice that? It comes up now at the end. You remember that when we talked about fighting over meat, we said one of two things is is probable. Either it was a bunch of Gentiles who had been used to, to demonic idolatry and to animals sacrificed in it, and now they were like white corpuscles against that meat because of what it symbolized to them, having been involved in idolatrous worship. They knew that most of the meat at the meat market had been sacrificed to idols. And so they was like, no, I ain't going to do that no more. All right. But the other possibility is that it was the Jews who were opposed to it because it wasn't kosher. It hadn't been killed. It wasn't the right kind of animal And so they were still trying to keep the Old Testament laws, right? And we admitted it could be one or both. It's surprising where this person or that person in church history comes out of it, right? 
we move directly from the exhortations and commands having to do with unity and peace into a discussion of Jews and Gentiles. And so it may be that there was some uh, circumcision, uncircumcision, Jew-Gentile stuff that was adding to the division, right? Now, of course, that's kind of a humorous thing to say if you have any familiarity with the New Testament. Because you know that the New Testament is filled with conflict between Jews and Gentiles in the church. It's a theme in the book of Acts. It's a theme in the first ecumenical church council in Jerusalem. It's a theme, shall we say, of, of Galatians. <laughs> you know? In other words, the New Testament is filled with evidence of conflict between Jews and Gentiles in the church. I would say that it was probably every bit as intense as the conflict over race in America today. It was on the present. Everybody had a different take on it. And everybody had a special, unique position. There was something about, you know, like me, my grandpa was, you know, he lost his arm in the Civil War, you know, and maybe your great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather was a slave trader, slave holder. And maybe you're from a city where they have a street actually named for a, for a slaveholder, you know, Washington Street. You know, I'm waiting for there to be this tsunami of repentance for calling streets Washington across America. I think I should put money into the sign-producing companies, <laughs> you know. Think about race in America, then transfer it to the New Testament church. The New Testament church was divided between Jew and Gentile. And the thing that they could not handle was the fact that God did not do what they thought he should do. And that's always what we're upset about. If I had a dime, I'll never forget when I first went to, 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 to Wisconsin, the first pastorate, I'll never forget going to visit this dude. Oh my goodness. I'm just remembering it. And here I was, just happy to be a pastor and making a pastoral visit because that's what pastors do. And I went in and, oh my goodness, in a very few minutes, my hair was plastered straight back on my head because I sat down and this man proceeded to accuse God of being evil. That bluntly. God is evil. And I was like, whoa, I've never heard this, but I guess this is the life of a pastor. Well, of course, since then, in various ways, Christians have a little more sophisticated way of saying it than just bluntly, God is evil. Christians tend to just be bitter and they blame people. But if you probe, it's God. It's God they're bitter at, you know. And so typically, we are angry at God. This is a basic condition of fallen man. This is who we are. And so when you think about the Jews, you think about, you know, Phil Yancey wrote this book. Oh, my goodness. And he titled it Disappointment with God. And he was like when it came out. Of course, it was a bestseller because Phil Yancey wrote it, you know. And I just looked at that title and I thought to myself as a pastor, is there really one person in the church in America today that needs to be encouraged to be disappointed with God, you know? I mean, do we need to channel each other's sin, you know? Um, we're disappointed with God. And that was the essence of the Jewish position at the time of the New Testament church. They were disappointed with God. In other words, they accused God of evil. They thought God done them wrong. Now, if I were to ask all of you that think that God has done you wrong to raise your hand, none of you would raise your hand because you're all liars. There are many of you who believe that God has done you wrong. 
And in any particular day, all of us think that. You know, I mean, who do you think you're honking your horn at? I mean, honestly. Do you think it, it escaped God's notice that you'd be stuck in a traffic jam, you know, for half an hour? You think it's the people there? You know, in other words, have a, a larger view of God's sovereignty over your life in the details. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because the church has always had fighting going on. And in the early church, the fighting was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews felt that God done them wrong when the church was filled with Gentiles. Do you understand this? It was like you have a revival service down south in antebellum times. And at the end of the revival service, the church is taken over with blacks. And you had a rule in the South that they would be in the balcony. But they filled the whole church, and what happened to the whites? Well, that's not right. I mean, come on, people, work with me. You understand, it's like we have prejudices, and all of a sudden, God's work defies our prejudices. The people coming to Christ don't have a college education, and they don't even aspire to send their daughters to college. And they're black. They're Johnny-come-latelys. Now, you may want to change it. You might want to say, well, the church is filled with a bunch of people who live for years as sodomites. And now, all the clean people are gone, and the church is filled with guys that are trying to leave their gayness behind. Are you with me? Take whatever cultural prejudice you have and multiply it times 10 and you have some feeling of what the New Testament church was like. Don't you remember what they called them? The Jews called them the uncircumcised. Now, you know, I don't care what word you come up with that's offensive in the race situation you have today, but whatever word you come up with, it's not nearly as offensive as being called uncircumcised. Come on, people. You know, he used the you word. <laughs> you know? And it kind of makes men at least a little uncomfortable. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and this is the church in the New Testament times. The Jews are still angry that Jesus was not who they thought he would be. They thought he would be regal and strong and would bring independence, 4th of July-ishness to them. After all, he's of the seed of David. And we all remember the glory days of David. And then along comes this guy who's and all the kids can do it for me now, who's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well, 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 come on, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our and we esteemed him not. Now that's a kind of complicated way of saying we were disgusted with him. He was such a disappointment, just like Phil Yatsik. The whole Jewish race was disappointed with God. They didn't need a book on it. But then it all came back to their sin. And they were between a rock and a hard place. Because the defining question that we all have, if we're honest, is how can a man be right with God? 
And no matter what our cultural prejudices are, no matter what our racism is, and no matter what our whatever it is, when we go to bed tonight and when we wake up tomorrow, the question that we have is how can a man be right with God? It's the defining reality of our lives. We know we're not right with God. We might argue like you wouldn't believe with our wife at the particular point that she tells us we're not right with God. <laughs> you know? In other words, it was after the service this morning, I finally said to everybody, would you just stay seated, please? That's why Max talked to you, so I wouldn't. You know? And so I go to the door, and I had a number of people explain to me why this this person left, and this person left, and this person. And that's the way we are, you know. We're, we'll always argue in the specific. And I would say to them when they got done, yes, but this is chronic in this church, you know. And immediately they would say, yes, that is true. And there were some great excuses. One child had a bloody nose, you know, and, 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 and a bunch of people left for a class. And, but it's chronic. How can I be right with God? Do not be so zealous to argue with the specific when it comes to sin. Remember, if a police officer stops you for speeding when you're not speeding, you just remember how many times you have been and have not been stopped. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is me talking, okay? <laughs> how can a man be right with God? And so the Jews, at the end of the day, despite wanting a glorious, regal, powerful, handsome, proud, patri patriotic victor, when God fulfilled his worth and sent a suffering servant who was despised, who had no place to lay his head, they were still left with the question, how can a man be right with God? And when they listened to Jesus, their hearts beat within them. And for the first time, they didn't hear a religious leader who always tried to explain what they had to do to be standing right with God. You know, it's like, well, okay, stretch a line out the front of your door, down 30 yards, and so on the Sabbath, you don't begin to travel until you get to the end of the rope. They literally did this, you know. Don't look at a mirror on Sunday because if you look, you might be tempted to change something about the way your face is made up. If you're healing a leg in order to take away the pain, you may do that on Sunday. But you may not heal that leg if it's for the sake of the future use of the leg. All these rules. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, a man that looks on a woman with lust in his, he's already committed a daughter. The men are going, oh, yes. Finally, somebody nails me. Because that's what we want. We don't trust religious leaders who don't nail us. And so they're caught. You know, on the one hand, He's not majestic, and he has no place to lay his head, and he lives off donations of women, <laughs> you know, which is about as low as you can get. That's what that dude in Houston does, you know? And yet, on the other hand, he's fearless, and he never tries to please anyone. He loves everyone. <laughs> and so guess what? The Jews become Christians. A few of them. And the Gentiles pile in. And there you have the early church. Tons of uncircumcised. And just a few who, despite the scandal of the suffering servant, described in Isaiah 53, humble themselves and come to Jesus. And this is the mongrel nation, nature of the New Testament church. And so we, you and I here today, are a wonderful approximation of it. You 
don't approve of a lot of people here today. <laughs> you know. <laughs> there are a lot of people here you don't approve of today. And, and I'll start with the one that's so obvious, which is, if you're a woman, you don't approve of the man sitting next to you. And the reason you don't approve of him is not because of what he wore to church today. It's because he's a man. It's fundamental. Women don't disapprove of you because of how you eat at the table. You eat at the table the way you do because you're a man. They disapprove of men. Women disapprove of men and men patronize women. And so it's not very difficult to be a marriage counselor. <laughs> you just spend your life trying to explain women to men and men to women. You know? Listen. In this room, we are filled with judgmentalism and certainty of our superiority. The only thing that differs is what particular insight we have that we hold precious. <laughs> and so a former Marine has a certain set of insights that he holds precious. Y'all with me? And I actually like former Marines' insights. I would like a few less non-former Marine insights in my churches. You know, there's something very direct and, shall we say, manly about Marines' insights, you know. I find it a great relief to talk to Josh Magnus. Did you hear that, Zakiah? She's sick today, but she's watching. I just am, am at peace and safe, you know. You all understand this. But then there's women who disapprove of former Marines. And I could go through the whole list of why you disapprove of them. Number one, you might be a pacifist. You might have been raised Mennonite, okay? Number two, you might not like men with short hair. Number three, you might like men that actually have college degrees and not Paris Island degrees. They have a little bit more nuance, you know. They, when they speak, there is more of an effort to enter into your personhood and emotional identity. You know, you don't go to Josh Magnus because you want him to enter into your emotional identity. <laughs> you know? You go to Mike Bowles for that. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to kid you guys much longer, which I don't know what I'm going to do. Think of all the things that define our pride and our humiliation, our fears, our cockiness, our children. Think of all the things that define us as families, as husbands, as wives, and how constantly we're tempted to look down at other people. You know, you know, Josiah. Did you hear me, Josiah? Wait, you're there, isn't that Josiah? Yeah, that's you I'm talking to. He's German. Need I say more? <laughs> now, it is a group like this that the Apostle Paul says, therefore, accept one another. Just as Christ has accepted us. And so, go to the end. Just as Christ has accepted us. Think about that a little bit because it will help you accept one another. How did Christ accept you? Well, think of the piece of work you were when you were called by Christ. 
Think of what you were like when you were given faith in Jesus. Think of what you were. I've told you what I was. What were you? You were an enemy of God. You were not a seeker. Now, I know you're going to say, oh, but it says he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Yeah, that is true. And so there may have been seeking in you. But listen to what Scripture actually says about those who have not yet come to God. It says you were dead. This is categorical to the Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You were dead, and you were under the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. That's who you were, all right? Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, do you know what comes next? Do you know the word? All. It actually does say all. Formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being, come on, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. <laughs> oh my. <sighs> Seriously? I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Seriously? <laughs> oh, I was a man right before God. Oh, just love. Just love because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, now why did he do this to us? Well, here's the purpose clause. So that in the ages to come, you know, I think of Adam all the time. I'm sorry. I've never had anything like this in my life. Not even with my dad. I just think of Adam constantly, all right? And I, I, this morning I was thinking about it. And I was thinking, you know, I know I believe because I I'm constantly thinking about what Adam's thinking about what's going on. You know? He is now in the ages to come. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. <laughs> now, why are they surpassing riches? Because you are a piece of work. You are pathetic. You are his enemy. You say, well, not anymore. I say, yeah, but I'm trying to get you to think about how incredible his kindness and acceptance. In other words, the whole point is, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. And this is how he accepted you. And there's nobody here that this is not the accurate description of you. And so you think about Ben Carell. You know, and you think, oh, no, no, no. Ben was perfect when he came from his mother. You know, in other words, you take, a, a, you take somebody who was born into a Christian home that you respect, and you say, oh, no, he never went through what I went through. It says all of us. The church always wants to sell the people in the church on the idea that you work a program and that's how you become a Christian. And those programs always have to do with lowering the standard and deadening you to your sin. They're always flattering you. They're always telling you that you don't really need the blood of Jesus. You can just have the sacraments. And the sacraments are the blood. The church is constantly telling you to do what? Well, anybody that's older knows that the church has constantly been telling us what? The church constantly tells us 
that you need to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Right? Right? But what it says here is, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. So apparently, what we need to do is recognize that we should do with others what Jesus did with us. So the acceptance is the harder one, right? Which is that right now, the person next to you, the people here you don't like, you are to accept, okay? You're to accept them, okay? Accept them. I'm just saying what Scripture says, right? You can't call me pushy. The Apostle Paul is the king of reiteration, (laughs) you know? And I'm nothing compared to his reiterating. Now, accept them. You say, oh, well, we already do accept each other. You say, oh, yeah, that's what I listen to every week. It's how accepting you all are, you know? You know, we're so accepting. Accept one another. Now, the question is, how do we accept one another? Matthew Henry used a word that I think is very, very good. And the word is embrace. Embrace one another. And I know you look at me and you go, oh, Tim, get off it. I have never had a pastor who's so fixated on bodies. And sometimes I wonder about you. But I'm fixated on bodies because I have noticed that the way marriages stay together is physical intimacy. You know, I wonder if God knew that when he made things the way he did. Do you think maybe God knew that marital embrace would bear the fruit of love? And of course, it's a stupid question. It's stupid. Everybody knows that's the case, (laughs) you know? We all know that we're not intimate because we need, we have an urge. We're intimate because our love needs it. Have you ever thought about that? You won't love your husband or your wife if you're not intimate. Come on. Everybody knows this, you know? And yet, in church, all of a sudden, we're like, uh, would you back up, please? You're invading my space. Okay, that's about right. Had somebody do this to me recently. Would you please back up? I don't remember who it was. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was in a good mood that day. (laughs) And I remember Tim Queering, who was an elder of ours. It was about, what, 6'5"? Humongous, huge beard wife who was, I would say, 6'2". She was over six. And one day I'm talking to Tim, and I was a midget compared to Tim. I didn't weigh as much then either. And Tim one day says to me, uh, another elder and I want to say something to you. And it's like, okay. And he says, when you talk to people, you need to back up. You are too intimidating. You need to give people space. And I thought, you know, he has a point. You know, he has a point. Then he told me this. He said, when you go up to the Children's Museum, which I have not done, and I hope I never have to do, okay? (laughs) All right, okay. I know it's a wonderful Children's Museum. I'm happy that many of you love the Children's Museum. He said, there is an exhibit there where there's a mirror, and they tell you to stand at the place where you're comfortable talking to yourself in the mirror. Then look down, and you will see your nationality on the floor. 
okay? Well, Tim Quaring was German. And he said, I'm German, and I'm the footprints that are farthest away from the mirror. <laughs> and I thought, well, that answers it. I'm Arab. <laughs> I'm not. But listen, what does it mean to accept one another? Do you know what I love to do is I love to go to Adam and to Bob. I love to go to Abram and Denver. And I haven't done it for a while, but I love having the people that care for me be people that I love in the church. Do you understand that? Because I feel like them caring for me is just an extension of the affection we have for each other, right? I think my most favorite thing is the acceptance of a brother or sister who's just died. And I'm going to go all soft on you now, but oh, the beauty of what Calvin calls the last rites of man, of caring for the body and loving the body and carrying the body and burying the body. Accept one another. Never forget going out to visit Mike right when his dad died. His dad died in the living room. And I remember Mike describing very quietly to me the care that he had just given his father after he died. And I bet that if you'd had a professional who showed up right then and said, I, I will do this for such and such an amount. I think Mike might have not been polite. He loved his father. And so I don't want us to go all cosmic on this command to accept one another. I want us to start with bodies. And I want us to realize that if we love each other, it's very hard to be censorious and judgmental and bitter towards somebody that you hug on Sunday morning. And I realized that I grew up with a dad who was incredibly tender physically. I know that. And so I know it's easy for me. But I'm not going to back down on this. I think that when the New Testament tells us to greet one another with a holy kiss... I don't think there can be anything wrong with me saying, greet one another with a holy hug. And I think you should just be happy I don't tell you to kiss. Because the Apostle Paul does multiple times. It's a command. It says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And let me tell you something. If you, if you read through the Bible and you make particular note of the bodily relationships of people in Scripture, do you, any of you remember Jesus and the disciple John in the upper room at the Last Supper? It says that he was the one who had his head on Jesus' breast. I mean, come on. Think of the perversion of the world that we live in when it comes to bodies and flesh. It's endless, isn't it? It's endless. Can't we as Christians show physically that we accept each other? And can't we have the faith to think that if we accept each other physically, that this will produce fruit that's spiritual and emotional and intellectual? You know, you can have whatever fight you want with your wife in the evening, but if that night you're in bed together, the next morning, whatever fight you have is, is my experience is it's, it's usually forgotten. Now, I told you I want to deal with the issue of 
what this acceptance is, and I want to read something from 1 Corinthians 5 to do this. You know that they've been dealing with real serious, gross sin in the Corinthian church. And the Apostle Paul is furious at them that they're not discerning the body of Christ at the Lord's table and are allowing this sin to be in their church, and they're proud. Oh, we have communion together, you know, and, 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 and you know, there's, well, that's, yeah, we're, we're just such a godly church. It's a gross sin, right? And then it says this. It says you've got to clean the leaven out because the leaven of this sin is corrupting the whole church. Clean it out so that you as a church can be a new lump. Then in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Well, you know, Houston, we have a problem here. On the one hand, there's this sin, and he's selling them to clean it out. On the other hand, he says, accept one another. Do you see? And here he's saying, don't associate. Well, okay, we're supposed to accept each other, but then we're, we're supposed to not associate. You see? And so he, he goes on and he says, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. I can continue to buy gas, okay? Or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, everybody in the world is a swindler and idolater, he's immoral. You know, this is the world. I'm not asking you to leave the world, all right? But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such one. And then he says, accept one another. Are you all with me? Houston, we have a problem. We're supposed to accept one another, and then we're not supposed to even eat with one another. Now listen, listen. This is a very important issue. All right? Listen very carefully. We always want to fit in with the world as Christians, and we can't. One of the ways we try to fit in with the world is that we try to major in the areas that the world approves of division. We want to fit in where we divide. And so the world today is absolutely committed to dividing over critical race theory. You all with me? The whole world has gone into a frenzy over race. And since the world is divided, we're very willing to divide the church over critical race theory. We want to divide over abortion. The whole world is in a frenzy over abortion. We want to divide over political parties. We want to divide over COVID. We want our divisions to match divisions that are recognized in the world, are you with me, and are political. Because dividing over politics is the whole point of life. There would be no life if we didn't divide over politics. And so what we do is we accept the divisions that the world approves of and fights over, but we refuse to divide over the things that God tells us to divide over. You all with me? Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, are you telling us not to divide over abortion? And my answer is, yep, that's what I'm telling you. Don't divide over abortion. Accept people who believe that abortion is okay in the case of rape and incest and fetal deformity. And you say, oh, Pastor Bailey, do you know what percentage of abortions are because of rape and incest and fetal deformity? It's nothing. That's just a Trojan horse by which they get us to blah, 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 blah. You got all your talking points down, <laughs> you know? 
And I say, yeah, uh, actually, I do know that. Well, how could you say that then? I say, well, because it says accept one another. And you say, oh, dude, you're inconsistent. The Bible says that we're not even to eat with people who are immoral. And obviously, if people are bloodlust abortionists, we shouldn't eat with them. And I say, you're right, and so I won't eat with bloodlust abortionists. You say, oh, come on! You just said you'd eat with and accept people that say that they think it's okay to abort if rape, incest, and fetal deformity. They say, yeah, I did say that. Well, I got some inconsistency here. No. How can you say this? All right, here's the answer. First of all, a huge percent of Americans, thankfully, are no longer saying they're Christian. And that's so helpful because that means that all those people are open season. The government doesn't sell you a duck stamp for them. Any day of the week, any time of day, you may evangelize those who make no claim to be Christian and are pro-abortion. All right? And you know that's true. You don't have to separate from them. That's what the Apostle Paul just said. You say, yeah, but you said people in the church who, are, who say rape, incest, and fetal deformity. And I say to you, okay, accept one another as Christ accepted you. Where were you when Christ accepted you on the issue of abortion? Come on, be honest. <laughs> huh. So in other words, a number of you, when you became a Christian, God gave you the gift of faith. You thought it was okay to abort in the case of rape, incest, and fetal deformity. As a matter of fact, a number of you, after you became Christians, had abortions. And I know this because you tell me. What do you think? Do you think God examined you to see if you were worthy of his gift of faith? Is that how things work? He went through the list, critical race theory, abortion, sodomy, murder, pride, greed, slander, you know, and he said, okay, you know, he's doing pretty well. I think I'll give him some prevenient grace. That's not the way it worked. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And if each of you were to describe for all of us right now publicly what you were when God gave you faith, all of us would be filled with joy and wonder to realize that God saved you. And then we would reciprocate we would say, you think that's bad. Let me tell you about me. And you say, okay, I'm completely confused. On the one hand, accept one another. Jesus accepted us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We didn't become clean the moment he saved us. We continued to have wrong opinions, wrong commitments. Some of us had abortions after we became Christians. But on the other hand, the Apostle Paul says, cast him out. The Apostle Paul says, don't even eat with him. What on earth is going on here? Right? Okay. What's going on here is that you must recognize that there are men and women in this world who hate God. And you must recognize that many of them claim to be Christians. And these people believe that if they claim to be Christians and follow their own will and shake their fist at God about homosexuality, about abortion, about these other things, it doesn't matter. Why? Well, because their brother, their sister, their mother, their father who's a Christian accepts that they're Christians. 
Are you with me? You must never allow them to use you as proof that God will accept them. You must demonstrate to them that there is no hope for them. Are you all with me? It is your testimony of cutting them off that has the potential to bring them to repentance. Don't you use your affection and your desire to go along to get along with your family as an excuse to violate the direct command of God in 1 Corinthians 5. You are not to eat with them. You say, well, what about all those non-Christians? Am I not to eat with them? No, I just got done saying. You're free to eat with people that make no confession. It's those who are so-called brothers, sisters. It's when they make a claim to be Christian and they promote abortion, promote homosexuality, and are not ashamed. Have nothing to do with them. Don't you go talking about, well, we're supposed to accept one another. That's wicked. You know very well you're not accepting them because Christ accepted you. You may say that. The reason you're accepting them is because none of us want to divide in our families and friendships. No, 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 no. And you say, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say. Your children are following God. And I don't even know what to say about that. Um, It's a miracle, number one. (laughs) Every older parent knows that. (laughs) Number two, I mean... Do I really have to explain to you the, the discipline that I've had to bring to bear on children? Do I have to describe to you the terror I felt as I told a child that this would not continue knowing full well that that child might walk out on me and my family? I mean, come on. This is the stuff of raising children. It's always brinksmanship. <laughs> You know, you're always thinking, are they going to hate me forever? And that's the way it is preaching. What do you think? You think I'm saying all this stuff because it'll just make you love me so much. (laughs) You know, we live by faith. It's not our ability to keep relationships going in the church. God is the one that gives us hope. God saves us. God accepts us. And how can we not do it? So you say, well, yeah, but you said that people in church who actually argue in favor of abortion for rape and incest should be accepted. And I say, yeah. And you say, well, it's kind of inconsistent. I say, no, it's not inconsistent. I am not saying that people in the church who defend rape and incest and fetal deformity, uh, abortion, are right. As a matter of fact, They're bloody wrong. They're promoting murder. And if they do it, they're murderers. So you say, well, then how can you accept them? (laughs) Well, I've been doing it my whole life. Do you have any idea the sins that are sitting in the seats right in front of me? I mean, honestly, is there any self-knowledge in us? Think of who you are, not even who you were. Think of the sins that you have to confess to God. You say, well, okay, but I'm confused. And I say, no, you're not confused. They're not confused at all. When someone stands in front of you and spits at God and claims to be a Christian, you turn away and don't eat with them. I don't care if it's your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. I don't care if it's the guy that you work all day, every day with. You may not act as if you have a good relationship with someone who has defied God and yet says they're a Christian. Okay? Okay? 
Now, what if there's somebody in the church who demonstrates an inability to understand God's truth at particular cultural crunch points that are breaches in the wall? And hoping that some of you read my piece on Tim Keller this week, I'm going to talk about Tim Keller. I spent a good portion of this week taking an article by him and showing how again and again and again and again he was deceptive in what he wrote. I tried to do it as respectfully and firmly as I could. It ended up being, what, 10,000 words, which is a quarter of a book, (laughs) you know? And so let me use Tim Keller as an example. I have watched over the course of a lifetime Tim do much damage to the Church of Jesus Christ on many levels. But you know something? I completely accept Tim Keller. Completely. And you say, oh, no, you don't. You would not be critical of him if you accepted him. Ah, there's your mistake. I would not be critical of him if I didn't accept him. (laughs) You know? It's those who belong to the church that we argue with. And it's not because we don't like them. It's because we do like them. It's because we love them. And so we slap them hard. Now, what is wrong with us that we don't understand this? What is wrong with us? I mean, honestly, you as a father and mother know very well that when you turn away from your children who are disrespectful to your wife, it's because you don't love your children and you don't love your wife. (laughs) And you know that it's when you turn back to that son and say, don't you ever talk to your mother like that again. That's the moment where you most love your wife, right, right, you're all with me, and you most love your son, and you love his future wife. (laughs) Are you all with me? We argue with those we love because we accept them. Argument is acceptance. You don't dignify a fool with your arguments. You dignify the people you love with your arguments. You want to improve them. Listen, anytime you read pieces that are written critical of other people, do you read them looking for what the attitude is of the person towards the person that they're criticizing? You know? Writing has content. I wrote a piece this last week about sports where I was snarky. You know, I was just snarky. I get so tired of the NCAA women trying to get fool me and think it's women, men playing. You know, every time I try to turn on a a March Madness game, it's women. And it's like, I didn't want women, (laughs) you know? But they keep shoving it in my face. And so I I gave into my inner snarkiness. And I wrote a piece. And some men, come on, raise your hand. You, you understand. Yep, yep, D. Wayne. I don't care about the rest of you. There's a black man in the back that agrees with me. That trumps everything. Okay. Then I pulled it down and I said, uh, after a night of thinking about this piece, I'm going to do it better. And you can tell that content. You can tell when someone is criticizing who actually has faith in God to change us. Can I say something to you? You know what Calvin says? So when you get to the end of this text, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He goes through, shows the predictions about the Gentiles in Scripture, and then he ends with this. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and what? Peace in believing. Do you, know what the, do you know what Calvin says about that? He says this. He says, 
in order that our peace may be approved by God, we must be bound together by real and genuine faith. Let me read it again. In order that our peace may be approved by God, we must be bound together by real and genuine faith. In other words, don't just blather on about peace. It's got to be the peace. You remember a couple weeks ago, the same thing. A peace that's according to Christ. It has to be a true peace, right? In order that our peace may be approved by God, we must be bound together by real and genuine faith. And then he adds, they were to cultivate peace for the purpose of believing. And then, for then only are we rightly prepared to believe. So he's talking about being bound together. He's talking about that it has to be true peace, that it has to be real peace, that we have to be bound together. And he says that we are only rightly prepared to believe when we, being peaceable and unanimous. Remember, I, I spoke a week ago about singing in unison. One mind, one will, one voice. Remember that, Okay. We are only prepared to believe when we, being peaceable and unanimous, in other words, one voice, do willingly embrace what is taught us. <laughs> and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking about Jody taking over. And I'm remembering that John Calvin and the company of pastors in Geneva, all around Geneva, the Reformers, that they would discipline people that went to Mass when they were off on vacation visiting relatives. In other words, John Calvin was very intense in saying no to people who refused to sit under his teaching and preaching and the teaching and preaching of whatever uh, parish they belonged to. He was jealous about that. And what he says here is that it's when the people of God are willing to sit under the teaching of Scripture, humbly, that God uses that to create unanimity, peace, unity. And so in a very real sense, the unity of this church will be a function of you loving Jody preaching to you. You can't love me preaching to you because I won't be here. And the thing that's characterized this church for decades is the fact that you as sheep humble yourselves to be under the preaching of the word. That's it. You're humble. And it has created a very sweet unity. Accept one another. Seek peace. Love your teachers. And you will be one. And they will know we are Christians. Because we're one. In the early church, there was nothing that was as evangelistic as the love of Christians for each other and for the lost. It was a saying, see how they love one another. That was how the pagans observed the Christians. What a sweet thing in Bloomington for us as a congregation to just love each other and be humble and allow our pastors are you ready to punch us? And you say, oh, you don't punch people, do you? And I say, well, not physically, but rhetorically, yeah. And you say, oh, but that's not really what you do. And I say, oh, aren't you nice? <laughs> so last Sunday, when I got done, I'm over there against the wall, and there was a young student from Hillsdale College who was here last Sunday of the weaker and more beautiful sex. And we're talking for a few minutes, and then she looks at me and she says, basically what she said was, 
how do you get away with it? (laughs) And I didn't understand what she was asking at first. It's like, what do you mean get away with what? And she said, well, you just like tell people their sin. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's like, uh, I copped to that. So I was channeling the scandal of it. And I said to her, well, okay, so um, often people, the first time they come, they're angry when they leave. And many of them never come back. Well, that relieved her. Because that matched her sense of something being wrong. You know, the fact that people would get angry and leave, that was like the level that she was at right then. Not that she was angry and would have left. She was happy. But she was just like feeling the, you know. (laughs) But then I said this. I said, but what happens is often they'll come back. And when they come back, as they listen the second time, they do this. They're sitting there and they go. And what they're doing is they're watching the sheep. And they see that the sheep trust the teacher. (laughs) And they don't, (laughs) you know. But they see the sheep do. And so they're beginning to settle back and, and, and they'll judge it for a few weeks. Then what they see is the love of the sheep for each, one, for each other. And it's clear that the peace of God is guarding the minds and hearts of the congregation. And they have the sense, the intelligence, to come to the conclusion that despite how offensive the pastor is, it seems to be producing good fruit. And I'm happy with that. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know. It's helpful. Oh, okay. Jody. Oh. Come. Relieve the dear people. 